You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on Yeshua in the Torah, presented by Justin Hibbard. Well, we begin our new series here, Yeshua in the Torah, and I want to begin with a question. And the question is this. If God is in the business of revealing himself to us, if he desires to let himself known, and sometimes let himself known in his distinct personalities, his persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. If that's what he's in the business doing, then did the second person of the Trinity, did he only appear at his incarnation? Or did he himself, in his personhood, did he appear before his incarnation? That's the question that we are pursuing here when we talk about Yeshua in the Torah, which basically means Jesus in the Old Testament. And we begin this morning with looking at pre-incarnate appearances. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to um, Genesis chapter 32. We begin with the story of Jacob. And I figured since this is Family Sunday, why not read this, this passage in one of my favorite versions of the Bible, the LIV, right? The Lego-inspired in, version of the Bible, right? <laughs> so we're going to look at this. We'll look at Jacob's story here in the Lego passage. And and we'll begin in Genesis chapter 32, verse 24. Just to kind of set the stage, Jacob has lived his life. He's had wives, he's had children, he's worked for his uncle Laban. And he is at kind of a crucial point in his life where he has run away from his father and from his family. Remember, he tricked his dad, Isaac. He stole his brother Esau's birthright. Now his brother wants to meet up with him later on in life, after all these years, after thinking everything was kind of buried and done with. And so Jacob, in his fear, sends everyone away, and all of his possession, all of his family, and he's alone. And that's where we begin in Genesis chapter 32, verse 24. It says, And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the rise of dawn. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he struck him uh, his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was dislocated as he wrestled. The man said, let me go, for day is breaking. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. The man said, your name will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have wrestled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. The man said, Why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, and am still alive. Kind of a weird passage, isn't it? Jacob's just standing there, and this guy just comes up and starts wrestling with him. And they wrestle for hours. It's just, there's no context to that, uh, how that began. Hi, my name's God. Hi, my name's Jacob. Let's wrestle. You know, it's just... I just find it to be one of the strangest passages in Scripture. And, um, and there's the, the, the wrestling match, and then the, the hip displacement, and then the blessing, all of that takes place. And then Jacob makes this statement here. He says, I have seen God face to face, and he's let me live. Well, I take exception to Jacob's statement here, because I read later on in Exodus chapter 33, something uh, that an exchange between God and Moses. Remember, Moses is on the mountain. He wants to see God face to face. And he says, God, let me see your face. And remember God's response. God says, no one can see my face and live. And if you recall back when I was talking during Yom Kippur about the mercy seat, 
I said, it's not that God wants, is trying to be mean to Moses. Remember, he wants to make himself known to people. It's not that he's, he's, he's saying, Moses, I, I, I really want nothing to do with you. I don't want you to see me um, or anything like that. It's just that God knows that we can't handle, our mortal bodies can't handle the radiance, the glory of God. It would be like us trying to handle uranium or plutonium or something like that. It's just too radiant for us in our feeble mortal existence. We just can't handle it. John seems to, um, he seems to uh, testify to this as well. John says in, in chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. So either Jacob is theologically just wrong, which, you know, Jacob wasn't the most godly person at this point in his life, so it's quite possible that he just didn't have his theology together. Or maybe he's speaking metaphorically. We can give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's saying, I, I saw God face to face. Like we would say something like, I see the face of, I see God's face in you, right? Or something like that. Or God's hand helped me in this circumstance or something like that. Or perhaps he's right. Perhaps he did see God face to face and was still alive. John says this in John chapter 1, verse 18, but let's look at the whole verse. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. In fact, in Hebrews, we read this, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 2.9 tells us, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Philippians 2, 7 and 8, in this famous passage, Paul tells us that he made himself nothing, Jesus made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Could it be that Jacob wrestled with the second person of the Trinity, God in bodily form? Well, let's take a look at some more passages. Let's look at Genesis chapter 18, if you have your Bibles, turn with me here. In Genesis 18, we read this, starting in verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get, get three seahs to the, of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. And then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, will I have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along, uh, along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So this is the exchange where Abraham starts to bargain with God. If there are 50 righteous men, would you save it? Yes, I'll save it. There are 20. If there are 10, get down to 10 righteous men. Yes, I will spare the land. And as you, and as you keep reading, it says that when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. So here are three visitors. We know one of them is the Lord. And if we read later on, there are two that go down to see Lot. Those are the two angels. So here the, the Lord is appearing face to face with Abraham along with two angels. And they're coming to give the message that Abraham, you will have a son. I'm going to come back next year and, he'll, and you'll have him. And, and then also to investigate Sodom and Gomorrah. I wonder at what point did Abraham realize that this was the Lord? I mean, we know right away that this is the Lord appearing with Abraham. But I wonder... When did Abraham get clued in? So I found a video uh, of this. I mean, it's obviously it's been remade, right? <laughs> Surprise, Abraham, you know. So, um, so but I, it was really interesting to, to watch this director's perspective and interpretation of the beginning of this passage. So take a look at this. An interesting perspective, isn't it? Um, of course, uh, in that passage, um, it, you know, God's face is hidden. It was a, an interesting interpretation which we'll talk about in just a minute. But Jesus said, in John chapter 8, he said, your father Abraham, he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said, how, how do you know Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. And he said, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. In John fourteen seven, Jesus tells us that, he says that if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you, uh, from now on, you do know him. And have seen him. And there's something else because at the and this is why I'm convinced that this is the second person of the Trinity who who visits with these people in the Torah and the Old Testament is because in John chapter four Jesus has a conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria, and he says God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. But in this case, he appears before Abraham in bodily form. In fact, Abraham makes him dinner, offers to wash his feet, everything like that. Do you remember what happened after the resurrection? One of the things Jesus did to prove that he was physically resurrected, that he was physically alive, he ate in front of the disciples. He ate so they could see that it wasn't just a ghost, not an apparition. It was really a resurrection of his body and of his soul. Let's take a look, if you will, if Joshua chapter 5 will be our last example this morning. One of my favorite passages in the book of Joshua. 
We begin with verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in the hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. We tend to um, get at, to the end of a chapter, and Scott, I really appreciate what you said last week about where chapter breaks happen. This is another bad one. Um, because we, we tend to read, get to the end of the chapter and we stop reading or we sort of think that the, it's a whole new context or something like that. But if we, if we read as though Joshua 6 were the same chapter, look at what we see. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. And then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all of the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So, we, you know, I, I've heard a lot of different interpretations of this passage. And, you know, the Veggie Tales is probably the one I hear the most because it's always playing at home. And they, they, they have two different people here. They have the captain of the Lord's army and then they have the Lord. And I think they're one and the same here. And the reason why I think that, um, not just because chapter uh, marks are not inspired by God, they're sort of man-made inventions. Um, but also because if you read this, think about it. Here's the captain of the Lord's army, like a five-star general comes into the room and he says, what message do you have for me? And the guy says, well, you're in the presence of a five-star general. You need a salute. Have a nice day, right? That's not really what five-star generals do. They come and they give war plans, don't they? Five-star generals know what the plan of attack is. They're the one that has the plan for the whole for the whole army. And so that's why I think God here appears as the captain of the Lord's army, and he's come to give Joshua instruction on how to defeat the city of Jericho. And not only that, but it sort of reminds me exactly of the story that Moses experienced there in the wilderness um, before coming back into Egypt. Remember the burning bush where God says, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. And then he gives Moses all the instruction on how he's going to go into Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. You might say, well, this is all very interesting, Justin. These are really neat appearances that that possibly uh, Jesus had in the Old Testament. In fact, you might say, I'm convinced. But what in the world does this have to do with my life? Well, I think there are some important lessons here. And the thing that I want to leave with you is this, is that sometimes, and for good reason, we have trouble reconciling the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament, don't we? The God of the Old Testament is rather harsh, uh, has these bouts of violence and justice and judgment seem to be the things that we think of. And then we look in the New Testament and read about Jesus and he, he seems so mild and meek and humble and forgiveness versus justice. And it's tough. I mean, we draw pictures. You know, kids draw pictures that depict them differently. Artists have drawn pictures that depict them very differently as well. In our minds, we do that too. 
And you can sort of sympathize with the Jewish people who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah because he seems very different than the God of the Old Testament. So what do we do with this? Well, I think it's important to to understand that as difficult as it is, they are the same God. This is not; these aren't two different gods here. We believe in one God, though He has three different personalities, and sometimes we experience one of those more significantly than the others, and sometimes we experience His personalities one more significantly than the other, and we identify, and rightly so, we all do this. We identify with something, whether it's His mercy, and some have admitted to identifying more with the judgment side of God and the anger of God. Um, and some say, well, I just I, I identify more with his forgiveness. And sometimes it's easier for us to just throw out the stuff that we can't comprehend, that we can't fathom. And that just becomes kind of foreign to our theology. I want to show a clip of this. It's kind of a caricaturizing of how this happens at a dinner table, um, at a feast of sorts from the movie uh, Talladega Nights. Vocals for Leonard Skinner was like an angel band. <laughs> well, you get the point, and obviously that's a, a bit of extreme, but I think to some degree, in, a, in some sense, we sort of do this in our own minds. I had a, a classmate in high school. He was, he was sort of the class clown, a real goofball, and everything he said was a joke. Uh, it didn't seem like he took anything seriously. And one day I overheard um, a girl saying that he had asked her to prom and that he, she turned him down and he was really upset about it. And I, and I stopped her and I'm like, are we talking about the same guy here? Because I can't imagine him being serious about anything. Or was it all just a big joke? No, no, he was really serious. Well, I just never experienced that other side of him. He never revealed that to me. I never got to know him very well to know that. And in some ways, there are certain personalities that the Lord has that he has sort of hidden from us, and we should be thankful for that, and some that he has revealed more than others. But we have to understand that when we read the Bible and we look at these stories, it's the same Jesus who says to the little children, let them come to me. And it's the same Jesus who reaches down and picks up the the woman caught in adultery and says, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. It's the same Jesus who, when he comes to the temple and sees all of the, the swindling going on, um, that he steps aside and he makes a whip with cords and then he comes back in and whips the people and turns over the money, cha- uh, money changer tables and opens up the cages and really unleashes a lot of chaos there in the temple courts. And then in Revelation, we read of another side, another image of Jesus, a haunting image of Jesus. He's riding a horse. His robe is dipped in blood. He's got king of kings and lord of lords written on his thigh. He's got a sword for his mouth. A very different side, but it's all the same God. We read in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are burdened, heavy laden, I will give you rest. And then a few chapters later, he says, But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck, and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. What a terrible thing to hear. What an awful thing to say, isn't it? That's a tough passage that we read. And I don't have all the answers. I, I, I don't know all of the intricacies of the Trinity, much less the personalities of the, of the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. But let me offer this as a suggestion. Maybe this will help. 
when we look at this passage, when we look at these passages, these tough passages that Jesus has, that he says, that we see a, a, a God who, who instructs Joshua and the Israelites into war, how do we reconcile that? How do we, how do we reconcile that with a loving and merciful God? Well, one of the things that you have to realize when you look at this, who is God? God is a father. Jesus says that I am the shepherd, and a shepherd protects his sheep, doesn't he? And when you look at this passage, we see this. Who, what is he being radical against? He's being radical against anyone that would harm his children. Anyone who would bring harm to his children, he will step up. We see that in his father figure, he, he protects Abraham. He wrestles with Jacob. What father doesn't wrestle with their kids, right? He wrestles with Jacob. And he and even we see him later on, or actually, yeah, later on in Daniel. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace? And what does Nebuchadnezzar say? He says, look, I see four men, not three, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Might this be another instance where Jesus comes to the rescue of his children? No wonder he is called the lion and the lamb. He has a side of him as a lamb and has another side as a lion. And all of us as individuals, as people, we, uh, we recognize that. There are lamb sides of us and lion sides of us. And all of us as fathers recognize that if any harm would ever come to our children, something inside of us would just boil up, wouldn't it? In fact, I wouldn't even, uh, people might not even recognize me. Or I might not even recognize that personality either. The second thing I, I think that points out, when we see Jesus become radical like this, when this different personality, this different side of Jesus, it has to do with the powers of darkness, overcoming the powers of darkness. Remember, God's world has been hijacked, right? Satan has hijacked his world. Creation, us, we are made in the image of God totally hijacked. Our hearts have been enslaved into sin. Our world has been marred. Even the the godly things that are set up later, the temple and the scriptures, and even church and doctrine and things like that, Satan has a way of, he just wants to put his hands on that and claim it for his own. Jesus stands at the tomb of Lazarus and cries because he sees what sin has done to his world. Because of sin, there's death. Because of death, Lazarus has died. Because of sin and because of confusion, the spirit of confusion, even his friends say, if you had only been here, Jesus, this wouldn't have happened. It's all your fault. And so we become confused and clouded. And I think that makes Jesus angry. It makes him sad. Against, not against us as much as against the powers of darkness that swindle us and take advantage of us and enslave us. And so Jesus goes to great lengths, to radical extremes, to alleviate this problem, to rescue the hearts of men. And that's what we celebrate in Christmas. Jesus coming as a little baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger. He comes, he sheds off all his equality with God, as Paul puts it, and makes himself into a human being, taking on the form of a human and humbling himself and humbling himself there in the manger, and then again at the cross. All this radical love for you and for me 
to free us from the slavery of sin, from the bondage of darkness, and to become and realize that we are children of light. And Jesus is, he is, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.